0: this week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by Bloom That, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron. And we're back. Good night, Detroit. Woo. Uh, <laughs> that's
1: right. We yeah, that was – I wanted to uh, – I didn't get to say uh, – hello, Detroit, Do you like a rock show yeah, at the beginning no, of it.
2: it's nice. I'm not, I'm not sure they would have gone for it, but uh, yeah. Oh, you mean a, the audience, yeah. yes. Well,
1: no. half of them were uh, my age and older, so yeah, <laughs> no.
2: Anyway, we just came back from our first live show in Detroit, and it was a blast. Uh, we are also dropping this week's show a little early due to some prior commitments this coming weekend, but we'd like to thank everyone who came out to the Detroit show. It was quite a thing for us to be removed from our studio trying to do something even remotely interesting on a stage where people can actually see
1: us. Yeah. You know, doing a live presentation in front of an audience is a whole different ball game, but we gave it our best shot and we think it came out okay. It was acceptable, at least. The subject we covered was the ghost town and cemetery of Parrishaney, Michigan, and we're working on turning that presentation into its own episode. So stay tuned for that.
2: Yes. And we'd like to thank Craig and Sylvie from Abnormal Allies for coming up from Columbus in the train three and a half hours
1: each way with hats, t-shirts, and stickers for our audience to purchase. It was yeah, great. Yeah, that was something. Anyway, we'd also like to thank author and paranormal investigator Debbie Chestnut for her input on the story we did there, along with author Linda Godfrey for her commentary on Paris Chaney and hauntings in general. And last but not least, we'd like to thank the buttoned up and on the ball Megan Mott, program coordinator at the Lorenzo Cultural Center. Megan's husband, Jay Swanson is a fan of the show and we're so glad he brought us to her attention or none of this may have happened in the first place. So thanks to you as well, Jay. And now that we're back in the relative safety and comfort of
2: Blanket Fortiana, let's get down to business.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The severest justice may not always be the best policy. President Abraham Lincoln. Join us tonight for part three of our series on Henry Plummer, a
2: last look at the legacy of the hangings in Montana, and an interview with author Frederick Allen, who literally wrote the book on it all. So when we started this series, we reached out to Frederick Allen. He's an author and a journalist, and he's the guy that wrote our primary source for this story, a book entitled A Decent Orderly Lynching, the Montana vigilantes. And the thing is, Mr. Allen, or Rick as we've come to know him, was on vacation when we emailed him. And that would be our fault entirely for not calling people until the last minute to see if they want to do an interview. Oh we always do that. It's luck of the draw. Yeah, it's we kismet. we never know what we're doing yeah. until a few days ahead of time anyway. But he did email us back and he was like, Oh yeah, no, I'm totally happy to talk to you. I just am out of town right now. So yeah. By the time he got back to us, we had worked our way through part one of our plumber series and most of part two, and um, we weren't sure what we were going to be able to do with his interview, but it turns out his interview was one of the most fascinating ones
1: I've ever done. Well, he turned out to be a great conversationalist. Yeah. That's a large part of it. If we think it's fun-filled and... Just a great conversation with somebody who's really knowledgeable, but just fun to talk to. Well, that's worth something in our book. If it was really, you know, academic and factual, but just wasn't that exciting, well, that's a different story. Yeah, it might have just wound up on Patreon as a little <laughs> bonus material,
2: but we felt like this interview warranted an additional episode on Plummer, and so we, we really wanted to include it and throw it in the mix here, even though we were dark last week. So it, we're coming back to it one more time because he does have a fascinating
1: additional perspective to offer on it. Well, you may think that we're done with the story. We're done with Henry Plummer's life story, and we're certainly wrapping up the movement of the vigilantes. But what we're talking about with Mr. Allen here is that these are larger issues at play here to this day, which involve justice and privacy and you know the rule of law. How far do you think authorities can go? Yeah, it's a
2: fascinating topic, and he has a wide perspective on it because he's actually a former political analyst for CNN as well as a journalist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for years. He has a lot of fascinating experience, and he was not only fun to talk to, but after having read his book as well as doing additional research on Plummer— For us, it was compelling to hear directly from him how he came in contact with this story and what it means to him personally and how he feels about where his book left it all. And as I just said, he's had a pretty storied career as a journalist and a writer and an author. And one of the funny things that he said, which I thought was really hilarious, was that when he wrote this book, he
1: may have picked the worst protagonist because he essentially (laughs) dies halfway through the story. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, there's more to it after he passes, of course, but he's really, I kind of see him as a, well, he's the central linchpin. And again, I'm using that word lynch again with the story, but it's around him that these questions arise because it's the actionable part of this story where they think he may have been the leader and he's the focal point. Right. Rather than just there's a bunch of rough guys and they look pretty guilty and they ran about and killed him. What makes this story so interesting is that we're not really sure. Yes, he was the sheriff, but he had some bad connections. But did anybody really investigate those fully? Yeah. That's a so, that's a good point. So he is the representation of the gray area here in the story, in that in the light of carrying out what you think is right how far do you go and who gets swept up in this? So, yeah, and he he kind of gets knocked off, you'll say, towards the last two-thirds of the story. But I still think it's like he's really the interesting part of it. And anybody in the area and the territories there, uh, the states of uh, Idaho and Montana and Washington will tell you, That's the name that sticks with it. Yes, you know about the Vigilantes of Montana. You've certainly heard the term. But when you say Henry Plummer, that sparks all that romanticism about highwaymen and good guys and bad guys, black hats and white hats. Yeah,
2: well, I got to say, it's been a very fascinating story, and and how it's framed throughout history is part of what we're going to talk about tonight with Rick. And I did want to point out, by the way, that it's not the only book he's written. He also was the author of the best-selling book, Secret Formula the inside story of how Coca-Cola became the best known brand in the world. And that also looks like a fascinating read. I haven't read it yet, but I definitely wanna check it out. Now, I'm at this point, and you will be too after you hear tonight's show, Cursed with the fact that I can't read anything he's written without hearing his voice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now afterwards, yes. Yes. But it's a good voice to put it to. It is. It's great. Yeah, He should be
2: doing books on tape of his own books, I think.
1: Yeah, but the tone of the book is really even keeled. And when I was kind of looking through what people have written, there's certainly, we'd mentioned before, there's a lot of different accounts spanning each side of the argument here, going way left, way right. And he's really kind of down the middle and makes a lot of sense. And his writing style really flushes that out. Yeah, he seems to avoid as much as he can confirmation bias. He's interested right.
2: in getting to the bottom of it and determining what really happened. And I think you will also find when you hear my interview with him that it's fascinating how those details started to unfold and shape how he was perceiving Henry Plummer as he began to learn more about him and, and the people around him. Before we go to the interview though, there is one thing that we wanted to mention That's something significant that we didn't really bring up in the prior two parts of the show, even though it's a very astonishing legends kind of thing, and that's the presence of a somewhat mystical number associated with the Montana vigilantes, and that number is 3777. It holds a mythical status in Montana, actually to the point where to this day, it is on the patches of the highway patrolman in Montana. Right. Among a lot of other places where it appears, right? The robber's roost?
1: Yeah, the yeah. robber's roost is a highway stop uh, or, or roadhouse back in the day, and also a, uh, you could say a funhouse, house, snake pit, as yeah. they used to call it. The sign still hangs over the door. And when you start to visit these places, you'll see that it pops up here and there. And basically what it means is we're not monkeying around. You need to get out of town, well, if you, essentially. If, if you're here... It's a warning. To, yeah, if you're going to break the law and harm people and their property, or just cause mischief, we don't need you around.
2: Yes, and it carries so much weight in Montana that as recently as 1978, I believe it was a mayor who apparently fled town after he got a postcard with 3777 scrawled on it. Well, that's all you need to say. It's, <laughs> we're going to deal with you standing up or laying down. It seems like a very real kind of death threat. Not just a death threat. It's like, oh, I, God, I got
1: another death threat today. Right. A death threat like, I got to go. well i think it connotes organization behind it yeah and not just look everybody gets death threats nowadays especially with the internet and you got to take them seriously you don't know what kind of a crazy person is behind it but this says the organizing faction that is kind of trying to keep order around here has deemed you an unhealthy and uh unbeneficial aspect and so you better be moving on right and the reason that we didn't talk about
2: 3777 in parts one or two of the plumber series is because we found not only through rick's research but through research in general that it didn't appear until years after the montana vigilantes first formed and we couldn't make a direct connection to their actions with it and you'll hear rick talk about that a little bit here in a bit but it wasn't something that was necessarily part of the original vigilante group that hanged 57 men over the
1: course of six years well, it's one of those things that pops up later, gets tacked on to the main legend, and becomes undetachable from that legend from here on out. And to this day, has deep meaning in the area. Right. But the interesting thing about it is, even though it has this deep
2: meaning nobody seems to know where it came from. <laughs> no, that's okay. it's like a it's lot like, of things. They well, can't even I mean, connect it. They, look, it has yeah. no
1: origin story. It's well. like if it's a comic book hero, there is no origin story for it. Right, but there's numbers, well, 420, okay? Yeah. So, you know, there's theories and somebody may have a good one here and there. It makes more sense than probably the people. No, no, you know. no, no, I we do know where that came from. Uh, well, Definitively? Yes. How?
2: I just read about it this past April 20th. NPR right. did a story on it with the origin for it. And there's a whole website with the guys who started it and they seem to have a fair amount of proof about how it got started and everything. Really? Yeah, They did it? Yeah. yeah. And it's, a, well. it's widely attributed to them. They were the high school kids in the 70s uh-huh. in San Rafael, I think, okay. California. And there's a whole webpage. They had a name for the group of kids. They were called the... Uh, the Waldos. Anyway, we're, we're getting off the beaten track. But what I'm saying is yeah. that there's more story behind that than, uh. than there was for a lot of people about 3777. But to be fair, that's until Frederick Allen came along.
1: Right. You hear stuff being from the region for many years, and those are probably bubbling to the top. There's probably three or four main ones. Yes. And, and when you pick them apart, they don't really make much sense, but that's what people have.
2: Right. And, and he's going to drill down on that here in a minute. But it's a fascinating topic, and when we got into it in the interview, I was glad glad that we wound up being able to include it in the plumber story no of course
1: because it also points possibly back to masonry yes yeah freemasonry that is that's one i'd heard growing up that made the most sense to me yes you know but again he makes a pretty good argument all that i am or hope to be i owe to my angel mother Aw, that's nice.
2: All right, so who said that? And also, why are you saying it in such a goofy voice?
1: Abraham Lincoln said it, and that's my impression of Daniel Day-Lewis doing his impression of Lincoln. Oh, a meta impression. Mm -hmm. All right, well, personally, I don't think he sounded like that. Well, how do you know? I I just do. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. But the sentiment is as true as it ever was, and Mother's Day is this coming Sunday. So we're going to tell you about a perfect way to show your love and appreciation for all that dear old mom has done for you, and for all the trouble you've given her in return. It's a freshly picked and professionally arranged gorgeous floral bouquet from Bloom That.
2: We've already received our sample bouquets, and it's a really beautiful presentation just as soon as you open up the
1: box. That's because Bloom That only cuts them when you order, so they last a real long time. And I gotta say, it was actually quite pleasing to have them sitting on my desk for a whole week or more. It really does lift your mood. And yes, as soon as you open the box, they're already artfully arranged by a professional designer and wrapped in a lovely burlap papoose. (laughs) Also, these came with a box of delicious salted caramels. Yeah, those caramels were outstanding. And these flowers are exactly the
2: flowers Howard's mom would order for herself. But you're not gonna make her do that this year, are you? It just takes a couple of minutes to order from the Bloom That website. And what you see there is exactly what you get. They don't send you substitutions, they don't ship the buds from overseas, sitting in freezers for weeks before ending up on an assembly line. These bouquets are excellent and super fresh. And with Bloom That, there are no hidden fees or surcharges that can turn your $30 gesture into a
1: $60 box of twigs. (laughs) Well said. So here's the deal, just for our listeners, and just for this week bloom that is already a great value but with this offer you get their best price on a stunning bouquet that's fresh picked and arranged by hand all ready for mom to brag about on social media plus you get a premium designer vase that normally goes for 15 dollars anywhere else and those handmade salted caramel treats i was talking about which normally go for ten dollars but you also get them for free that's a huge savings of around $25.
2: But you can only get it by going right now to bloomthat.com slash
1: legends. Don't make mom lie and say she loved your coupon book for free hugs. Just go to B-L-O-O-M-T-H-A-T, that's bloomthat.com slash l-e-g-e-n-d-s to find the perfect, professionally arranged classy floral bouquet and you'll automatically get the free premium designer vase plus the delicious caramels it's a $25 value this
2: amazing deal won't last and it's only available to our listeners so do it now, go to bloomthat.com slash legends Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors I'm Court Douglas, now back to the show let's head over to the interview. Hey, Rick, thanks for talking to us today. Before we get down to brass tacks on the Henry Plummer story, I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background.
3: Well, I was a newspaper man for a while, and I'm glad to have done it. It's a an industry that's obviously in some jeopardy these days, but I'm just old enough that I got started with my apprenticeship back in the days of manual typewriters and metal desks and wearing headsets and writing obits straight from the funeral parlor. And it was all a bunch of blue collar white men. And then everything changed rather dramatically in the seventies. I often joke that the entire craft was ruined by all the president's men oh, uh, my because gosh. we went from, you know, honorable ink stain wretches to uh crusaders thinking we were, you know, our job was to bring down presidents and it, so I think things kind of went to our heads. But, That's an
2: interesting uh, perspective. I had never really thought of it that way.
3: Yeah, you can find some self-righteousness in most journalists, and, and I certainly had my fair share. But uh, but I was drawn into the political side of things, so eventually I became the, the new side political columnist for the Atlanta Constitution, the Daily in Atlanta. And it was an interesting time when I arrived Jimmy Carter was the governor and Lester Maddox was the lieutenant governor. We were on just on the eve of electing the first black mayor of Atlanta. And now all these many years later, we may be about to elect the first white mayor in a couple of generations. Oh, wow. But anyway, I had a good run at the paper and then I got hired by CNN to be their lead political analyst for the 1988 presidential race, which was a glorious exercise in democracy. You'll recall that was Michael Dukakis and George H.W. Bush. And the famed uh, tank picture. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. I had a hand in causing that piece of footage to run over and over and over again on (laughs) CNN. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, really. Wow. While I I was formally impartial, I actually liked uh, Bush as a person, although I gave him fits over some issues, but Dukakis is the coldest fish I've ever encountered in, in politics. I, I just, I mean, I, I didn't know anybody who could warm up to him, and I, I don't know what kind of president he would have been. But I don't think he would have been a very good one. Wow,
2: that's fascinating.
3: Yeah, well, it was interesting, but but I realized after close to twenty years in journalism that I hated news. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the great journalists—it's their oxygen. A scoop is what they live for, but. I often felt that news just ruined all my plans for the day, and, and the, the biggest challenge was, was writing something every day without a complete or even a satisfactory grasp of uh, all the background information that really should be a part of anything that's written. Yeah, And so I realized I was probably more of a historian than a journalist, so I took to writing books, and uh, I wrote a history of the Coca-Cola Company. That's still around, called Secret Formula. The company's utterly fascinating. In its years, its evolution from the snake oil and patent medicine era into being arguably the best-known product, symbol, name, whatever you brand in the world. Sure. Uh, and then I wrote a history of modern Atlanta back during the Olympics, and I and about a dozen other people helped to prove conclusively that people who Visit or watch the Olympics, do not give a hoot about the history of the venue. (laughs) Uh, But Atlanta has a a rich and fascinating history. I am proud that that book is still taught at several of the colleges around here. Oh, that's great. And then about 20 plus years ago, my wife and I, really my wife, decided that uh, if we were going to have a second home, maybe we could do something outside the predictable cabin in North Carolina or condo at the beach and so we started dividing our time between Atlanta and Bozeman, Montana and that's how I got interested in the Montana vigilantes.
2: Okay so you were exposed to that by actually being there you were unaware of it till you became a part-time local?
3: At the time we were getting started in Montana my wife we bought some land and my wife was building a really nifty house it looked like an old railroad hotel you know big great room and uh-huh. Lovely view of the mountains and all that. And this is back in ninety-five, ninety-six. And back then Montana had no post-to-daylight speed limit, you may recall. I do
2: recall that because I graduated high school in eighty-seven and was starting college. And I remember I was obsessed with fast cars back then. I'm a much calmer, mellower person now. But I remember as you know, as a <laughs> teenage boy, I was just like, Oh, you could go as fast as you want. And I've got to go to Montana. I do remember that. <laughs>
3: Well, I mean, it captured everybody's fancy. And so I got pulled over for speeding because there were some places where the speed limit was posted. And it was after dinner. probably should have been a DUI. But uh, fortunately, I was cogent enough that the state patrolman was kind to me. And we just got to chatting. Uh And I said, I'm just curious. There is a speed limit. It's called reasonable and prudent. And I said, what does that mean to you? And he said, Somebody driving a nice car like yours, and I was driving a rental wreck. So I, I, if he thought that was a nice car, I was amused by that. But he said, if you're on the interstate in a mechanically sound car, I'll give you 100 miles an hour. And I thought, wow, that's crazy. Because, you know, as, as sparsely populated and enormous as Montana is, it's still a mountainous state in the western third of it. And you you should not be going 100 miles an hour on anything out there. right? But while I was chatting with the highway patrol officer, I noticed on his shoulder patch and on the car door insignia, these three numbers, 3 7 seven seven. And I said, do you mind my asking what do what those numbers mean? What do they represent? He said, well, those are the mystical numbers of the Montana vigilantes who were the sort of founding fathers of the state and it represents them. And I said, you're kidding me. What does it mean? He said, nobody knows. <laughs> right. That just absolutely intrigued me to put it in some context. Montana had for years celebrated these vigilantes as, you know, sort of the first people's public safety committee, the people who brought order to an untamed part of the world and so Montana is full of vigilante references I think the high school yearbook in Helena is called the vigilante there's a vigilante theater in Bozeman counties are named after them and everyone has a lot of respect for them but Montana was also coping 20 years ago with a bit of a reputation for harboring white supremacists separatists the mad bomber off kilter types it was a little bit of a public relations issue for them. And I thought, gosh, you know, if your highway patrol symbol that usually says serve and protect says 377, and all anybody knows is it means the vigilantes, that's really bizarre. And so it happens that I just, I love puzzles and riddles, cryptic crossword puzzles delight me. And, uh, I just got curious and I decided I wanted to find out what those numbers meant. And so I just began doing research. And when we began our part-time residency out there, I befriended the president of Montana state, Michael Malone. He was a very accomplished historian and he kind of took me under his wing and encouraged me to do research. And Mike, Thought it would be a great idea to look into the numbers he had an ulterior motive that I'll get to in a second but this all started with me trying to figure out what those numbers meant and there was a lot of speculation there were theories about what the numbers meant one was that it was the dimensions of a grave which never made any sense to me because it implied the seventy seven would have had to have been inches and that would be six feet five inches and I wasn't aware of anybody having been hanged or executed otherwise who was notably tall. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't dig graves deep because the ground was so harsh and unforgiving. The most common theory was that it was a period of time that the bad guys in these goal camps were given.
2: To get out uh, of town, right?
3: Yeah, three days, seven hours and 77 minutes to get out of town. Well, that doesn't make any sense either, because that can be expressed in a different number. So anyway, I poked around at it. I commuted from Bozeman up to Helena on a fairly regular basis, and uh, I eventually came up with a pretty good scholarly theory that the numbers didn't actually date from the original vigilantes at all. There was no record of any use of those numbers by the people who hanged Henry Plummer and who cleaned out the gold camps in the 1860s. The first use I could find was almost a full generation later in 1879. And there was a a public safety committee A committee of vigilantes got active in the late 1870s in Helena and uh, ran a bunch of people out of town. And it happened that there was a $3 ticket on the, 7 a.m. stage and there was a committee of 77 and I've to this day I don't know if it refers to the year 1877 or the number of people who were in it but I'm pretty certain that that message that was chalked on sidewalks or scratched into tent flaps to intimidate and terrify and expel ragamuffins and ruffians and vagrants it just simply meant we either give you or you get a $3 ticket on the 7 a.m. stage to Butte. And in fact, there was an evidence of a pretty wholesale exodus of ruffians from Helena who arrived in Butte a few days later. So I think that was it. Anyway, I wrote the longish scholarly article for the Montana Historical Society Quarterly setting out that theory. And then I just sat back in sheer terror that somebody would discover something in an attic the next day that disproved my theory and made me look like an idiot. But that was close to 20 years ago now, and no one's come up with a better theory. Yeah, I I think
2: I was right. It sounds pretty interesting. It's compelling, and it makes sense that it's get out of town, essentially. That seems like a logical message to come with that. But then also because of your book, you know, we just— This interview with you is coming on the heels of a two-part series that we were doing on Henry Plummer and the Vigilantes that drew a lot from your book as well as a few other places, but And we didn't really bring up the 3777 specifically because you had said it was downstream of their activities, of the primary activities of the group, you know, associated with Alder Gulch and everything. But I I, I did read online somewhere that somebody had said that there was a theory about Masonic numbers of the lodge that was in Bannock and the numbers of the founding members like Nathaniel Langford and that sort of thing. But what you're saying makes more sense to me.
3: Well, the Masonic. Part of it, I guess we'll get to that because there may be something to that. Yeah. But in, in terms of the organizing principle behind the original vigilantes, um, I think masonry may indeed have opened some avenues of trust between different individuals at a time when there was a great deal of distrust going around. Sure. Um, but I find it really sort of. Convincing that first of all, the vigilantes who hanged Plummer and others in the early going, they ran a few people out of town, a couple of noisome lawyers. Yes. For the most part, they killed their victims. They hanged them. That was the whole point. So the numbers, there were no warnings. And I couldn't find, I mean, there's not a mention of it in Dimsdale, there's not a mention of it any of the territorial broadsheets. I mean, I found what I'm almost certain is the first use of the numbers in the Pelina Daily Herald in 1879 in response to a a particular incident and meant to revive the Vigilance Committee. So I think I was right about that. But I wrote the article. Uh, The editor of the Quarterly ended up being the publisher of Oklahoma University of Oklahoma Press. And so there was kind of a natural fit for expanding into a book. And Mike Malone really encouraged me to write a full book on the vigilantes. And I figured out later that he did have an ulterior motive. And it was that he had written a review of Ruth Mather's book. Yes. And she became the first real revisionist historian who took a, you know, not just a sharper look at it, but a a diametrically opposed view of the vigilantes. And he panned her book and she didn't like that. And so she caused some of her circle to protest. And I think he wanted me to jump in there and prove that the traditional view was right and that Mather was wrong. And so I put an awful lot of time into something that I'm not 100% sure merited it, but I'm glad that you have an interest in it, and I'm happy to talk about it.
2: Okay, all right. We just wanted to step in here for a minute, because I did want to talk about, we mentioned a little bit in parts one and two, Ruth Mather and F.E. Boswell, the Mather and Boswell book, which is the other historical account of the plumber and the Montana
1: Vigilante's story. Well, it's fairly recent, having been written in the late 80s. And they did a lot of research. They went through to the accounts of the time and and diaries and biographies, you know, whatever they could find, the same as Frederick Allen. And when you say fairly recent, his book was more recent. Yes, exactly. No, no.
2: But theirs was before his. In
1: his introduction. They wrote
2: three books, actually, about it.
1: There's, uh, I think, a total of five about the times, about that era and that location. And he, uh, Mr. Allen, does in his introduction, give them a lot of credit for, as he says, like having the signposts up that he can guide him to his research. Right. But he can't really stand with a lot of their conclusions. And
2: I would have to agree with him because their point of view is, they were revisionists, but revisionism can go a couple of different ways. And you would say in this case that they were apologists, right? Well, I'll
1: put it this way. Henry Plummer, as the report said, He was a charmer in life. He charmed people. He he was magnetic. He could influence men and woo the ladies. And it seems like he's still charming people to this day because they just seem very enchanted by him as a character. And when you go through every point in somebody's life that's a little shady and you immediately go to like, well, he was just misunderstood. and, And, you know, there was bias against him. Well, this is clearly bias for him in every case. And as we said before, it's like, you don't have to be lying directly in your book, but you can be lying by omission in a way. Yeah. Good case in point that uh, Frederick Allen points out in his, uh, also in his introduction, in and, and laying out his tack with the book. You know, you can take a look at the uh, trial that Henry Plummer was up for, for shooting John Vetter. And one bit of testimony as they relay, because they went through the court testimony, the transcripts, it's all there. Everything that was said by the defense and the prosecution and witnesses, Mather and, and Fred Boswell will say, Vetter shot past through the kitchen and out the front door and stuck in a fence post. And that's when Plummer returned fire in self-defense and killed him. Well, that was the testimony of one witness, but there's a few more witnesses that said, that hole in the fence post there, that was old and it was painted over. And, and might it, not have even been, may, been a bullet hole. May <laughs> not have even been a bullet hole. And there's other compelling evidence to suggest that Vetter may have not even fired his gun, in which case Plummer shot him in cold blood. Yeah. Because he was troublesome. Yeah. So Mather and Boswell don't mention this other these other aspects because it's inconvenient to their narrative. Right. Even though they're going against I guess you could call it the law and order narrative of the time of Langford and Dimsdale. So they're going the opposite way, perhaps too much as well. And by the way, we I can see that you have your hard copy right there. Yes. We
2: should tell people what the name
1: of the Mather and Boswell book is. Yes. It's called Hanging the Sheriff, a biography of Henry Plummer. And this hardbound edition here is from 1987. Right. There was a paperback that came out, so it kept the book in print. But it's available there's not a whole you know lot of copies but it's around and it's considered a very good resource if you want to know about this however you do have to keep an open mind so while everyone in my generation generation
2: x was out (laughs) with spiky hair and wearing parachute pants i guess that is your generation uh mather and boswell were writing a pretty cool book about the montana vigilantes although it might be biased in hindsight it still is a fairly interesting read with a lot of factual information in it although it may be omitting some information that would have you draw a different conclusion.
1: Yeah, well, it's not just kind of omitting. There's shading and there's a lot of supposition. A good case in point here is that Ruth Mather is a pretty good genealogist and has done a lot of research in that area. So Plummer's origins were always very shady. He was a cagey character, you could say, at the time. Nobody really knew where he was from or he gave conflicting stories again, pointing to people's suspicion of him. But they dug down as as deep as they could go, and that's where they found the name discrepancy. They did find Addison, Maine. There was a plumber family, but with one M. And, you know, being New England, it was a long line of Puritans. And so this is kind of funny. This is a quote from Mather. His values and ways of thinking did not stray as far from these roots as we have been led to believe. Now, that excerpt is from a book review by Lorna Thackeray of the Billings Gazette in reference to their book. And she points out their summation here is generally that Henry Plummer, this is a uh, Ms. Thackeray's uh, description here that Henry Plummer, they describe as a decent, courageous, hardworking, honest, honorable, and even romantic young man misunderstood by his contemporaries and the victim of the fact that his enemies survived and wrote the history of early Montana. Well, parts of that are true. Yeah. they You know, the, the victors write history and I'm sure that, yes, they had a bias to paint the picture that everything we did was cool. Yes, well, you know, not I, totally by the book, but justified. I will point out that the Montana Historical
2: Society, which is the great repository of most of the images associated with the Montana vigilantes, was founded by the Montana vigilantes.
1: So, (laughs) hey, well, they get to, you know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. No,
2: I'm just saying.
1: Exactly. But here's a good point. When you read a book like this and any kind of story, and this is kind of something we're teaching ourselves and would love you, the listener, to also keep in mind as you go through these stories, all the things that we cover, because some of them are pretty way out. But even this one's an old West story. You have to keep a critical eye and an ear open for bias of any kind where it starts to sound like this is starting to sway one way or the other and not really be that objective. Yeah. And so it's subjective and a lot of supposition is going on. Good case in point here is where Mather and Boswell discuss Electa Bryan's marriage to Henry Plummer, a less than three month marriage. Yes, it was a short one. It was a short one. And... They're talking about, it seemed like, it was very short. We know that, of course. She took off for Iowa. Yeah, she left. Yeah. Right. Even up. when, as her family was in the process of moving out to Bannock, where she was. Exactly. So it's very strange. But their supposition is that she was basically just lonely. You know, he had his mining claims and his sheriff duties, and he wasn't spending as much time with her. Robbing, and, pillaging. And <laughs> doing whatever. Whatever he was doing didn't sit well with her. In fact, that, you know, where you describe where he rode along for like two or three days. Yeah. I'm trying, to trying to get her train. To come That's back. That's what you do with when you're trying to convince somebody when you did something really bad, yeah. in lieu of buying them a $10 million ring, you really try your best to convince them. Well, that's not just saying like, hey, you know what? I'm really sorry. Let's spend more time together. You're right. I've been away too much. Yeah, That's easily remedied. This sounds like there's something she heard that really put her off her eggs about this guy. But there's a quote here from Mather and Boswell stating that, quote, there may have been some initial disappointments and some serious problems, but not likely any conflict sufficient to destroy their love so soon. Well, you're supposing something about That's a relationship a serious, you don't even know. Yeah, yeah. it's a serious supposition yeah, about something that took place a long time ago. Right. And there was nobody at the time talking about it. But if you look at contemporary reports at the time, there people heard arguing. You could tell he was, yeah, he'd had some ladies who were a lot more fast, you could say, than electa. Yeah. And he did have some other concerns going on. So, again, you're painting this in the way you would like it to be. So that's what you kind of read when you are reading this book. However, there are bits of it, as far as the research goes, where it's like the Hotel Luna, the Luna House Hotel. You know he signed in there. So there's some factual things that they dug up and, you know, make a claim to that you can take for honest uh, factual reporting. One of the cool things about
2: The Great Courses Plus is that you can learn about everything from modern-day life skills all the way back to the first recorded legend in history and the latest lecture series we're watching, Great Mythologies of the World.
1: Ah, you're talking about the ancient Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest story in the world. And you don't have to learn about it from a bunch of busted-up old clay tablets either. Because with The Great Courses Plus, you can stream any of their riveting lectures anytime you want on any device you own, smartphone, laptop, tablet, or TV. And yeah, I'm a huge Gilgamesh fan because he wasn't an entirely fictional character. There really was a Sumerian king named Gilgamesh who ruled the city-state of Uruk in the 27th century BCE, and his legend has so many connections to other mystical ancient stories, like he might have been a Nephilim. Ooh, you going to tell our audience what that is? Nope, they're just going to have to look it up if they don't know.
2: Okay, well, then you should at least tell everyone a little of what we learned about Gilgamesh.
1: Okay, well, one really interesting thing is that the epic of Gilgamesh involves a story of the Great Flood. After Gilgamesh's one-time foe and later best friend Enkidu is killed by the gods, Gilgamesh is distraught and sets off on a soul-searching journey to contemplate his own mortality— He seeks out Utnapishtim, who, along with his wife, have been granted immortality by the god Enlil, and Gilgamesh wants to know his secret. Utnapishtim tells him that Ea, the Mesopotamian god of water, told him to build a huge boat because a great rainstorm is coming. Utnapishtim loads up his family, some neighbors and all the animals of the field, onto the boat, rides out the flood, and after six days and seven nights, lands on a mountaintop. He releases birds to see if the coast is clear, and when the dove and the swallow come back, everyone disembarks. Utnapishtim offers sacrifices to the gods, and because of this and his success, the gods promise to never again allow such destruction of human life. Sound a little familiar? Yeah, it it does, just a little bit. (laughs) Of course, some scholars have argued
2: that this flood story independently corroborates the historicity of the biblical flood story, while others claim it proves the Bible story is based on ancient Near Eastern myth. The one thing we do know is that the world's oldest story lives on to this day and was even the storyline for a Star Trek
1: Next Generation episode. Indeed. The legend has lived long and prospered. And here's a fun way to let your mind prosper. Check out this and over 8,000 other courses for free for a whole month by going to our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-S.
2: You're going to love it as much as we do. Go get your free month of unlimited viewing on everything from science and history to learning to play the guitar. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends.
0: I'm Josh Steen, the host of the Just Us Geeks podcast, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right, let's get back to the rest of the interview. Well, it's a fascinating and compelling story. And in terms of outlaws, I feel like Forrest, my co-host, had brought it up to me, and part of the reason that he was so familiar with it is because he's from that area of the country. and. He grew up around there, and we have made a running joke just accidentally about not really saying where he's from, but he's from so he knew about it, and he brought it to my attention. I was like, well, yeah, I've heard of Henry Plummer, but I can't really say why, but he's he's not Butch Cassidy or Jesse James, but it's almost his story is is more compelling in a lot of ways than theirs. With regard to some of the questions I sent you, And because our listeners are already, by the time they hear this, they're going to be pretty familiar with your book because we covered a lot of information that you had in it. What is your personal feeling about Plummer? Do you think he was a criminal mastermind or do you think he just was guilt by association?
3: Well, I tell you, when I write history, I try to bring to it some of the narrative techniques that some of the great nonfiction writers of our time whom I admire, uh, use the McCulloughs and the Caros and people like that. So I I was really trying to write a story with a central protagonist. And I was seduced by Plummer, as a lot of people have been, because he's an intriguing figure. And there is no yes or no answer to the question you ask. But I have to tell you that about midway through writing that book, as I was kind of weighing everything, I knew and could figure out about Plummer that I probably made a mistake because I cannot find him to be a sympathetic character. Uh By the time he ran afoul of the vigilance committee in Bannock, he had killed five people in violent encounters. Yes. Uh, There's no question in my mind that he was a very volatile, dangerous, and violent individual. And... I mean, all these, these legendary figures of the Old West are intriguing to me because they're so hard to pin down. And it's odd because in almost all of these settlements, when you have the rush of settlement for a gold rush or a silver rush, there are instruments for recording history in place within a fairly short period of time. And you have letters home. Uh, I always put a lot of emphasis on contemporaneous accounts of things. Sure. Diaries on the theory that they're probably more candid than some other things, although not always. Uh, letters, because they are contemporaneous and often intimate. And then you have, uh, usually within a year or so, somebody's printing a broadsheet with some local news. So these things are knowable, but there's something about that first year of frenzied settlement. And I I suspect some of it just has to do with the age, uh, and gender of the settlers. It's often young to middle-aged men who are hoping to find their fortune in the gold fields. And, uh, so they tend to gather as young men will in bars and there's alcohol involved. And, uh, things just don't, don't always get recorded to one's complete satisfaction. So Plummer was, he was tough for me, but on the other hand, he'd been on trial twice in California and the transcripts were there. And, you know, I read them one way and the revisionists read them another, but seemed to me that he had indeed been guilty of at least manslaughter. Um, You can argue about second-degree murder. Uh, But the question that you're asking, there was a phenomenon that occurred that I think your listeners might be interested in. My book came out in October of 2004. So we were in the middle of a presidential election. It was Bush, W. Bush, seeking re-election against John Kerry, the Democratic nominee. And the nation at the time well, it still is, was convulsed with the question of how you deal with terrorism. And it was it was a, a fresher wound at the time, of course, because it was so close to 2001 to 9-11, but we still deal with it to this very day. And I found as I went around giving talks and signing books and meeting audiences that Without exception, I mean, literally without any exception whatsoever, I could tell if somebody was a Bush voter or a Kerry voter, depending on, on what they thought of Plummer and the vigilantes. And the reason, I think, is that if you believe that the terrorism is an act of war and that the people who are carrying out are enemy combatants, then you don't scruple terribly about killing them because you're at war and that's what yeah. soldiers do to each other in war. If, on the other hand, you believe that terrorism is a criminal act, then you tend to think that the perpetrators of terrorism should be captured and tried and punished according to the criminal codes of our country. And it went that way with everybody I met. It was just fascinating to me. The people who thought that plumber. You know, had not been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and he was not proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He was assumed to be a bad guy, and I think if you believe that terrorism should be prevented, and the only way to prevent it is to kill the people, well, you can stop them sometimes, but generally the idea is to drop a bomb or a drone on them, then you're not too upset about what happened to Plummer. But if you think we shouldn't do that sort of thing... And so I, you know, thank God my job is not to inform the the moral code of the people who read books because they're <laughs> perfectly capable of doing that for themselves. Yeah, and, sure. But I mean, you know, I do remember that this is bleakly amusing. I, this was a lecture here in Atlanta at the Margaret Mitchell House, of all places, and I gave my talk. And at the end, uh, the guy was really vigorously shaking his arm in the front row to ask a question. And I called on him, and he said. I don't believe there's any such thing as a decent orderly lynching. And I said, well, of course not. But there is such a thing as irony, and it seems to have escaped you. (laughs) He he may not have stuck around to buy a book. Yeah, right.
2: Well, you explained clearly uh, where that uh, title came from in the beginning of your book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean,
3: I can remember letting out a whoop when I found that sentence in an editorial because I knew I'd found my title. Sure. I sent the manuscript out to the publisher. And the publisher in turn farmed it out to a freelance line editor, which is a great, I mean, you've got to be edited. And uh, manuscripts back then, I don't really know what they look like these days, but manuscripts back then, you printed them out, double spaced one side of the page. And so it basically filled a box. Right. And so I sent my manuscript off in a box and About three weeks later, it came back, and I opened the box, and I almost fainted, because there was a Post-it note, or two, or sometimes three, on almost every page of it, (laughs) and I thought, what in the world? Because I'm a a pretty scrupulous writer, I'm pretty careful, and uh, I care about grammar. (laughs) I couldn't believe that some editor had found that many errors, and turned out that over and over and over, he was just furious about the vigilantes. He just thought that they were wrong as they could be. Oh, and God. almost every post-it note was an admonition to me to denounce them.
0: Oh, and, wow. Uh,
3: That's amazing. That's fascinating. It's funny. And yeah. I called the publisher and I started off by joking with, him. I said, if we want to get rich, we're going to go long on 3M today because this one guy has used Every posted note in America, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to have to. They're going to have to go to night shifts. Um, but, but on a more serious note, I said if that reader, and he was a PhD, you know, a, a very erudite chap, I said if he was free to feel that strongly about the vigilantes, then I'd, I had done my job. I didn't need to direct him how to feel. He was perfectly capable of deciding that on his own, and. So, I mean, I feel that way to this day. I personally came to the conclusion that the level of violence that was occurring was probably adequate to justify the formation of some form of government. Uh, And I think they could have done a whole lot better job than they did of carrying out the duties of a committee of public safety or a, a vigilante. Committee, so I can certainly flaw them for not having done a better job, and I'm held out a great deal of, of criticism in my own mind for Edgerton. Yes, he was the chief justice of Idaho Territory, and he hoped to become governor of the new, and did in fact become governor of the new. Territory of Montana, and he just sat idly by and watched this whole thing happen. Yeah, I got um, that from your book. Lifting a finger.
2: Uh, Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. And saying that he hadn't been sworn in. And, you know, it was uh, Sanders, who was his nephew, right? Wasn't Wilbur Sanders? Yeah, uh, who who took up the cause. And, And it's interesting what you say about the violence creating a situation. They were in a position of do something, even if it's wrong. And it seemed like they started out they had this list of names. And that's the other thing, I read Yeager's list, his confession with all these names on it. You know, I had posited in our show last week that it might have been fabricated by the vigilantes because then they hanged him and he was gone and they were able to say, well, he said all these people, so we got to go get them too. Do you think it's possible that something like that happened?
3: Well, I dealt with that at some length in the book. And so my memory isn't quite what it once was. I recall... You could easily make the assumption that the list was fabricated after the fact uh-huh. to justify uh, all the killings, but it didn't end up being a complete list of the targets of the vigilantes. So if that was its purpose, it was inartfully and erroneously done. Right. I think that Yeager confessed to something. Uh-huh. but exactly what it was is hard to say.
2: A few minutes ago you seemed to be implying that you were a little reluctant about having painted
3: plumber at all as a likable fellow or You it? No, no no about let it, me or? let me complete that thought. Okay. No, this is just an author's lament uh-huh. that uh I had set out to have a protagonist who was going to be interesting throughout a book and the first problem was just a practical one that he dies halfway through the books right I didn't I, I didn't have a protagonist to hang my hat on after that right sure so that was that was just an error of judgment on the part of an author who thought the one character would suffice to string the reader through the whole story I lost my protagonist but on a more serious note I did conclude that he was a bad guy. Yeah. I just couldn't come to any other conclusion that he was a bad guy and that his having been executed while people are certainly free to think that it was done improperly are going to have to do a lot more work to convince me that an innocent, you know, a, a true, a decent, honorable guy was improperly executed, I think you can take exception to almost any execution for a lot of different reasons. And so I have no quibble with people who think that Henry Plummer should not have been hanged. But I have a big beef with somebody who's going to try to convince me that he was a great guy. right? And that there was some criminal conspiracy to take something away from him, it just doesn't ring true to me.
2: Do you think he was a ringleader, or do you think the organization had a ringleader, or it just was sort of happenstance? Because to me, it seemed like I had posited this to Forrest on our, our last episode of our show about him sitting in Christmas store and getting all the information about the comings and goings of everybody with their gold dust, and maybe he was just relaying information for a cut, or do you think he was more of
3: a coordinator? You know, that's an excellent question, and I have no earthly idea. Right. My sense is that things were not coordinated all that carefully and thought out all that well. It wasn't until I really started researching this, that I, I had some pretty obvious thoughts that I should have had you know, before they jumped up and presented themselves to me. But really, you didn't steal from people in the camps because you you lived with them and worked with them. It was a collaborative exercise it was more like just a camp camp than a, this image we have of a prospector panning gold in a, in a river and having a nugget of gold bang into his pan and <laughs> he struck it rich. It's just, it's not true. I actually had a, a geologist who helped me on the book because he said, if you're going to write about gold mining, you ought to know at least a little something about it. And we weren't pan gold one day at, in Alder an Gulch, And it's, pack-breaking. It's terrible labor. And so these miners, they collaborated immediately. They they were like unionized themselves and they built huge sluices and they churned through immense amounts of gravel and took out the dust. And they lived with each other. They actually, they did have courts and a, and a rudimentary form of justice that dealt with claims and footage and contracts and things like that it was the criminal violence that became the real issue but the insight that i had was you didn't go and rob somebody you shared a cabin with or the guy in the cabin next door because you all lived together right so where was the opportunity well the opportunity was when miners left the camps to go back east to go home uh to take their gold dust and to use it to bring their families out or to buy the next year's supply of dry goods or whatever they hope to sell. That was when they were vulnerable, was on these trails. And so the stagecoach coach holdup, which is such a cliche, is really pretty accurate. That was going on. Who was doing it? Was it, I'm just remembering now, there was all this Falderall in Dimsdale about how they wore neckties and Call themselves the innocent. Yes, and, and the haircut. That, you know, the that was weird. And, the... and the haircut. And that's just claptrap. That's just not so. Yeah. And so I think you had ruffians who rode up and down these trails looking for targets of opportunity, who hung out at the various ranches along the trails where they would exchange gossip and maybe find out if somebody was carrying dust and maybe follow them and maybe rob them. But what I concluded was that. If you had a supply of gold dust and you hoped to get back home to the states you know in the autumn of the year when the prospecting was about done, you had every reason to be terrified
1: sure and
3: you had reason to want to protect your gold dust because that meant everything to you so i'm not I'm not surprised that the vigilance committee acted and I'm not at all convinced that the people they acted against were organized into any kind of unit that allows me to answer your question. Okay. You know, Plummer had gone to the trouble of wanting to be a lawman. had had experience in finding fugitives and, and acting in a in capacity of a lawman and basically did nothing when some of these robberies took place. So it's not surprising to me that suspicion fell upon him, but, Again, neither do I have a quibble with people who say, you didn't prove this. I mean, not only did you not have a duly constituted court of law with any actual governmental authority, but you didn't even hold a decent people's court and try to get at the truth of it. So they they didn't hang him in a way that would satisfy an awful lot of people that justice was done, but it was enough for me.
2: For me, one of the other big mysteries is Electa and how the brief amount of time that she was in his life and then she came back to Bannock with him and then she took off while her family was en route to be there and live near her. Do you have any ideas why she took those steps? And I had thought maybe you had mentioned in your book that he rode along next to her for several days trying to convince her to maybe to stay or come back or you know, maybe we don't really know the reason why he did that, but... I guess I wondered in force, and I talked about this a little bit, whether or not he had sent away some of his loot with her and was actually riding along as a guard or well, some other kind yeah, of thing. Well, yeah,
3: uh, and when you asked, I, I actually <laughs> I went back and read that part of my own book just <laughs> to refresh my memory because, mm-hmm. again, it's been a while sure. since I did this research. And I can remember just trying to reason it out. All you can do sometimes is you can't write a book that attempts to tell history and fill every page with a bunch of hand wringing in which you say, I don't know what to think about all of this. You know, it's a, it's a balancing act. You're an author. That means you're an authority on things. And so you decide some things and then you leave others. You're more candid about saying, I don't know. First of all, I don't think he had any money. He could barely figure out how to make a living because he was, he was crippled in his hands. So if you, move on to the assumption that he was the ringleader of a gang and that he was getting a cut of the swag and that he then meant to send it back East with electa and that he rode part of the way to protect her. Why didn't he just keep going? I right. mean, he'd sold his cabin. He had settled his affairs. He had said he was planning to leave in a matter of weeks, if not days, why wouldn't he have gone with her? So you know, I just balanced in my as best as I could in my mind for what seemed reasonable given the set of facts that we did have. And it seemed much more likely to me that she learned something about him that horrified her and made her want to leave him and get out of a marriage that suddenly seemed fraught with peril than it was that she was taking the wad home and that he was going to go with her part of the way and then go back for no evident reason that i could find and then leave again in a few days and rejoin her it just didn't make sense to me and the way she lived later i mean she was an identifiable person and she didn't live in any grand way so if she did go home with some fortune of his and he died presumably she would have lived a different kind of life
2: i found her on ancestry.com she had a ton of kids remarried, the whole nine yards. She's in a bunch of people's family trees now.
3: Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I, I knew she had a family, and I didn't yeah. do much digging beyond that. But uh, that conclusion hasn't ever really bothered me very much because I was a one lecture, and a guy came up. I won't tell you who it is because I don't want to bother his privacy, but he is literally a billionaire. Okay. And he was all over me about plumber's cash of, of gold. And I, I, I figured out he's a, he's a guy who owns some, some, land in Montana. And I think he was kind of hoping he was going to find a deposit of gold on his property. And I uh-huh. thought, you know, you're already a billionaire. I, w- I wouldn't waste too much time on that. I, I just don't, I don't think it happened. It's fun to think of where it most often comes up the idea of plumber's secret cash, is people who accept the idea that there was a north versus south element to all of this. Yes. And uh, that just doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I can remember I was at, at uh, Pompey's Pillar years ago and encountered a very nice, earnest, young national park historian. Uh-huh. You know, the National Park Service has given us some of the most celebrated historians we have. They're often just brilliant, but this guy was working on a whole thesis that the people who hanged plumber were union league. They were union right. sympathizers. And I said, well, then how do you explain the head of the committee was a copperhead? Yeah. He said he was, I, said, oh, <laughs> God, I, just, I just blown some kid's dissertation out of the water. <laughs> I felt a little bad, but not too bad. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I think we touched on the Masons earlier and I, To this day, I I have educated people come up and say, you know, I think there was a Masonic element to to the vigilantes. And, you know, I found some vigilantes who weren't Masons. But if you go back into the middle of the 19th century, particularly in areas where the population was changing, was highly mobile, it was hard for gentlemen to recognize each other. I mean, we all do that to this day. You meet somebody, you know, where you're from, oh, do you know so-and-so, and you begin sure. checking people out, and you know, what's their pedigree, and this and that. And masonry, I think, permitted uh, gentlemen to take each other's measure and, and have some trust because of, of the nature of it. And so I think it's possible I mean, every time I tried to tidy this thing up too much, it would burst out of whatever I was trying to tie it up in. Sure. Merchant versus minor, north versus south, whatever convenient lines you thought might explain how two sides of something would be at war with each other. It didn't hold together. Maybe it just started out
2: as a born out of fear and... and concerns about the things that were going on and the fact that everything was lawless and then getting organized to do something about that. And even if it was in a little bit of a haphazard way initially, it seemed like as it progressed, a mob mentality took over and it devolved into the killing of Jose Pizantia or these other folks who, the one gentleman who was hanged because he wrote the letter that was critical of the vigilantes. <laughs> it's just, it seemed like it just got worse yeah. and worse and
3: worse. Oh, yeah. One... Well, aspect of this that I hadn't thought of a minute ago, but hadn't emphasized. vigilantism is a crime of conservatism, if you will. It's meant to protect the status quo. If you think of the Ku Klux Klan in the American South after the Civil War, that organization was trying to restore the status quo ante of trying to reestablish slavery, in effect, And vigilantism, it's an instrument for the strong to protect themselves from the weak. And uh, what a lot of these people, just as they feared being robbed on a a trail and wanted to prevent that from happening, they didn't want to go and be be robbed and killed and then have somebody adjudicate the matter later. They were willing to take steps to make sure the crime didn't occur in the first place, which is what brings me back to the analogy with terrorism. How do you prevent this from happening in the first place? And there was a fear of arson, a fear of vagrancy, all kinds of bad things could happen if the ruffians in town got out of hand. I mean, it was not terribly unusual for somebody to set a fire to create a distraction so they could race into a saloon or a hotel and rob the till. Sure. Well, that's fine. And you can certainly arrest the guy and, and try him for burglary or robbery. But meanwhile, the hotel is burned to the ground and there's nothing you can do to get it back. So vigilanteism was undertaken to prevent crimes from taking place. And that's obviously fraught with the potential for injustice because I may think you're about to rob me. And if you are, that's one thing. If you're not, something else entirely. It's why we don't exercise thought control, and it's why we don't take people who look like they might be criminals out and shoot them. But right. in some real sense of it, in the fight against terrorism, you do take out people who look like they might be up to something and, and shoot them. Uh, it's a horrible business, and it's tough. And that's why people disagree so vehemently about it, because it gets right down the moral Core of everything, sure, so the vigilantes uh the power corrupted them absolutely, and they did so quickly ran afoul of any higher purpose they might have been exhibiting in the early going so i'm not I'm not a huge defender of the vigilantes except in the very early going and and I even then I think they could have done a better job of it, but they didn't I
2: presume that you're still part timing it there in Montana you and your family when you can.
3: Um we still own a couple of houses out here but yeah. and we were there at Christmas but it's getting we're hard. getting it's hard to get there yeah. and I'm getting old enough that I I can't do some of the things that I used to do so I don't think we're going to spend a whole lot more time out there we won't be strangers because we got good friends out there we want to continue to see but i I haven't been half and half in a while we actually we moved to montana Uh full-time back in 2005 and i mean it's a wonderful state i love bozeman i love big sky a lot of friends wonderful variety of circles of people i mean you know you're sitting at dinner one night talking to the guy who climbed Mount Everest in period costume and found <laughs> Mallory's body. You go, holy oh, yeah. moly. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing. Or you get invited to have dinner with Ted Turner. And it's, wow. Yeah. So it's a fascinating place, but it's a semi-arid mountainous region. It's It's a bit of a harsh environment. As we get a little bit older, we won't be there as much. Sure, sure.
2: Are there any rumors of... Any treasure or anything left over from all the people that were killed by the vigilantes any holdings or or do you think just the vigilantes were blowing through it as quick as they were stealing it or I mean because the one stagecoach had tens of thousands oh yeah twenty thousand or something on it do you think that that was that that's still out there somewhere or
3: well that's a great question and I don't have an answer for you I just don't know mm-hmm was there local lore
2: supporting any treasure in the area, like in Big Sky area or Bozeman or around there that you've heard?
3: Oh, no, no. One point I, I hasten to make that I, I don't know that it would be terribly useful or attractive to you, but I was stunned at how little anybody really cares. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I thought, here I am, uh, a, a part-time arrival and you know, ex-journalist. Uh, Picking at the threads of the formative morality story of the state of Montana, and nobody cared. Yeah, yeah. So you had this, you know, century of almost lazy acceptance of the notion that the vigilantes were great heroes, just folklore, pure folklore. And you had Plummer just, you know, assigned the role of of homeless, you know, psychopathic killer. And everybody seemed reasonably content with that. I mean, it, the person I think I admire the most, if you go find J.W. Smurr back in 58 in the Montana Quarterly, he was a professor at MSU, and he's the one who took the brave, fresh look at these righteous hangmen and said, wait a minute, look at some of the stuff they did. My God, if they had a noble or moral beginning, they certainly lost their way and did terrible things. And I don't think anybody much cared about that. Right. Uh, Right. But then Ruth Mather came along and her book did ignite a spate of revisionist history. But I went and met her one time. She's a perfectly nice person. And the entirety of the revisionist community about the vigilantes could fit in a VW bus. Right. (laughs) It's not a mass movement. Right. 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 I mean, people really are just surprisingly indifferent to any kind of, of an attempt to take a closer look at all of that. It was interesting to me.
2: Yeah, um, sure, sure.
3: Because I, th- I thought people would get much more exercised about it. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I remember calling up the head of the highway patrol and telling him I'd figured out what 3777 meant. He said, that's nice. <laughs> more or less hung up on me. <laughs> Just, just didn't care. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So your question caught me a little off guard because I'd never subscribed to the theory that there was any great fortune accumulated and certainly not one that anybody's likely to uncover today. Okay. But you do raise a good point because there were stagecoach holdups and they did involve a season's worth of gold dust in the tens of thousands of dollars in some instances back when that was actual money. And I don't know what happened to it. I have no idea. I don't think it was accumulated by anyone. I don't see that. The, you know, the real money, and there was a lot of money that came out of the ground there. I mean, it is worth pointing out. I think Montana's was second only to California's uh, yeah. gold rush in terms of its yield. So, I, yeah, that's so what I remember mo- reading. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of money did come out of the ground, but the money was the people who mined the miners who made the money. You know, it was the dry goods people and the saloon keepers and. All these places tended to become respectable within a fairly short period of time, which is another reason that you didn't really need to have a vigilance committee. You you, you had federal judges operating. You didn't have to do that, but it was convenient.
2: Do you have any sense, because I didn't look into it, of what kind of governor Edgerton became? Was he effective or, or not?
3: I think I'm right about this, that he convened, the first legislature, territorial legislature, and he was not going to let an ex-Confederate serve. You know, this is at a time, I think, when you sort of gave your parole, you gave your word that you were through with all that stuff, and you were welcome back in. And Edgerton was, he was so partisan. I think he was out before too long. I don't think he was a very good governor. But right.
2: Forrest wanted me to ask you one, I'm, we're going to let you go here. It's already been an hour, but there's a couple of quick things and we'll wrap it up here. But he had heard a story about three or four men coming into town with like strong boxes and they locked them up in a safe one night and, and stayed. They had a sentry who stayed there all night with them and then left the next day. Have you ever heard
3: anything about that? It's in there. Oh, that's in the um, book? Well, yes. where where somebody. Spends the night and it's uh, Langford, okay. okay I yeah. think and yeah. he's traveling with somebody. Uh-huh. So you can find that. Okay, uh, I will tell you that I found Langford to be unreliable to the point of, of uselessness. <laughs> uh, I mean, he, he made up almost everything he wrote because I put a lot more credibility into other folks. I'm just trying to remember. It, it's it, it wasn't an incident that rises to the notion that there might still be strong boxes full of gold everywhere. Okay. okay. And if you guys have ever actually been to Bannock, there's virtually nothing there.
2: Yeah, I haven't. He has, but yeah. I
3: haven't, yeah. It's a little state park and there are a few old buildings there, but there's nothing there that would conceal a, a bunch of, of buried treasure. I just don't think that happened. We've really enjoyed having you on the show. I enjoyed the conversation and it, it's always good to be reminded of research that was so fascinating at the time and how much of it I've forgotten in the years since I did it. But so you're welcoming me back to some old friends and adversaries and I I enjoyed the exercise. Thank you.
1: Hey, did you see those MasterChef Junior episodes where the kids made Blue Apron meals? Yeah,
2: that was so cool. Cooking at home is becoming a lost art, and, you know, I take the responsibility of teaching my son how to do it very seriously. I don't want him to grow up eating out every night or wolfing down five-for-a-dollar
1: ramen in college like I did. (laughs) I know what you mean. Well, that's the great thing about Blue Apron. All of the ingredients are pre-portioned, reducing waste, and they're responsibly sourced, too. So in addition to teaching your kids how to cook... They can also learn about sustainable seafood management and regenerative farming. It's easy to get pretty far away from understanding where your food comes from these days, and I've been as guilty
2: of that as anyone. But Blue Apron has not only made me open my eyes about it, it helped me be a better dad by teaching my son how it all works, from farm to table, as well as why it matters where your ingredients come
1: from. Blue Apron builds strong bonds with the family as well. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times more often. Well, we definitely do at our house, and on top of that, it's saving us a
2: fortune in both time and money spent at the grocery store or restaurants because it comes out to less than $10 per person per meal. The other thing that's great is that after helping me cook something, my son's way more open to trying stuff he's never had before. In fact, this week, we're looking forward to the crispy salmon and roasted potato salad with pickled mustard seeds and creme fraiche sauce. That would have been a tough sell before we started Blue Apron.
1: Well, life's too short to be making mediocre food all the time, so why not start your journey to becoming a better cook by trying out Blue Apron right now? Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You will love how good it
2: feels and tastes to create incredible home cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: This is Joe Freeman Williams. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show.
2: All right. You know what? I got to tell you, I had a lot of fun with that interview. Absolutely. And I don't
1: know, Rick, you can send me an email because I know you're going to listen to this, but <laughs> I felt like we yeah. kind of hit it off. <laughs> well, I know, and you got him introduced in the podcast because I yeah. don't think he was really listening. And then he was like, well, this is this is okay. This is a good format. Yeah. Oh, he'd be a great guy to have dinner with because you just love to you know, pick his brain about all the things he's researched and uh, his time as a reporter and... His knowledge of, of everything, he's not only a great writer, but he has a great uh, amount of knowledge in his possession. Here. Yeah, I think
2: about living on the East Coast. I wish I was closer to Atlanta so that I could go down and hang out with him, at, you know, at right. least take him out to yeah. dinner or something. It <laughs> would be fascinating. And, you know, and splitting the time in Montana, that's pretty amazing, too. And I, I could tell you, I want to go now. You've been oh, to the well, area. No, I'll have to, but, uh, now one
1: of these days, I'm going to have to take you to not only Bannock, but Virginia City and Nevada City, which is right next to it. They're slightly different. I mean, a lot of times, you you know, especially in California, you go to a ghost town, quote unquote, and you get there and it's like, yeah, there's a few foundations and a chimney stack yeah, and some burnout sheds. And that's about it. And at one time it was a big deal, you know, and the history is still there, but not a lot of the buildings were just kind of run down. The thing about Bannock is that there's been some preservation. So Skinner Saloon is still there, you yeah. know, and I have pictures of the bar. Henry Plummer's scaffolding, his gallows is still there. Now it's not, as I said before, I think in part one, the original, it's not in the original position. Yeah. But the original wood is there, it's just been moved. So a different spot on the hillside. So that's like living history. Now, what's great about Virginia City is you get there and it's very well preserved. In fact, I think there's a little over 100 people that still live in the area and they'll put on Pioneer Days. Yeah. And we just happened to be, when our family was doing a road trip through there, we just happened to catch it. Oh, really?
2: Where were you guys going uh, from and to? All
1: over. uh, I went to Lewiston, when all the places. That's kind of why I like this story here so much, is that we went to every place, most every place that's been mentioned here, Orofino. Well, where did you start out? Oh, Eastern Washington. A northern Idaho area. Oh, That's geez. where I grew up. It northern just keeps uh, yes, going. I like actually the spent, well, I spent my time in eastern Washington and also northern Idaho mostly and Montana because it's a panhandle. It's a long so you, list. Well, you can be in an hour, you can be in three states. Yeah. In an hour, I can be across town here in LA. That's yeah, six miles. Yeah, six miles, <laughs> it took an hour. Seriously. That, yeah. I can get to Santa Monica. It will take that long. So Uh, You can cover a lot of distance, but there's a lot of... Let's be fair, though. That's actually nine miles. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, no, you can go on these great road trips. And the other place that's kind of cool that you should visit, I'll take you to one day, is Nevada City, Nevada. I think we talked about this. That's where Mark Twain lived and wrote for a while for the paper there. And that's also a very well-preserved ghost town. Very touristy. I mean, a lot of... There's still shops there and, and restaurants, of course. Yeah. But just really cool to see. And Virginia City, as we'll see in some of the pictures I'll have up, there are well-preserved shops. So you can, you know, behind plexiglass, but you can see the actual wares that people were trading for and buying it's at the It's frozen in time. It is frozen in time a little. Yeah. Let's, and by the way, Forrest
2: has a lot of pictures of this area. And we're posting the show a little early, so they might not be up immediately with the posting, but just come back in the next day or two, maybe by Friday, I think we'll probably have most of them up there.
1: Yeah, we'll have a good selection. And uh, because everybody loves to look at other people's vacation photos, don't they? Hours (laughs) and hours (laughs) sifting through with no explanation. No, I'll try and caption them, but at some point, yeah, you you obviously know what Bannock looks like. And then Virginia City and Nevada City, are. it's all very cool to look at if you're into this kind of thing.
2: Well, it's time, and thanks, again, Rick, for coming on the show. We really appreciate you taking the time and doing such a great interview. Uh, it was great to have you on. Maybe we can have you on again someday. And i um, definitely going to look you up uh, next time I get back east for more than a few days at a time. But it's time for us to talk a little bit about our conclusions on this show and our conclusions about the Henry Plummer mm. series in general. I know we, you know, there was this whole idea of buried treasure and we, we, we had, <laughs> yeah. I, we've had a few complaints here and there. What is going on with, how is this an astonishing legend? And oh, it's like, it's, yes. to me, well. it's into, you know, where's the buried treasure? <laughs> right. I don't know. For me personally, I don't think there necessarily is a buried treasure here. Even if there was this really complex organization that Plummer was or wasn't the leader of, I'm not convinced that these guys didn't just blow through it like every criminal and famous musician and movie star does. Right. Just, you know, we well, got a, t- a billion tons of money yeah. going to town. It's gone in three weekends. That's easy to you do know. now with Vegas yeah. and places <laughs> to spend it. Back yeah. then, it's like,
1: I bought 20 sacks of flour. No, I mean, but you could, you could do a under, bad
2: land deal, and no, empty y- mining claim or something. Sure. You know? there,
1: I, there's not much evidence of that, but... It it goes back to obviously what we know is that there were stagecoach robberies and that's another funny thing about uh, Mather and Boswell's book. It's just like it wasn't a huge crime wave as we said before. Sure, there were some robberies. It's like there's eight in three months. Yeah, yeah. With maybe calculating at the time, getting near close to I don't know 70, 80, hundred thousand dollars and those terms and you know those monetary terms back then. So it was pretty substantial. None of it was recovered. You didn't see guys going out. Yes, there could be large stashes, but mostly what people did back then is that they didn't go out and spend lavishly. Now, I kind of do believe that Palmer himself didn't have much on him. I'm of the conclusion, though, that he may have been taking a cut. Like you said, I think that's a pretty solid a finder's fee. That was my ex- guess. Exactly. Yeah, Something and I, sh- I should have asked lines. Rick about that. I didn't ask him. but... No, I think you did. I mean, you did. You oh, did, yeah, yeah maybe because, I did. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because in that. the yeah. Christmas store, I believe, you know, he had oh, a lot yeah, that. Right? Right. people yeah, come yeah. in and like, well, I'm heading out to whatever, you know, the Salt Lake City on the eight o'clock. And it's like, oh, okay, I'll make a note of that. Pass yeah. that along to uh, Clubfoot George, yeah. Red Jaeger, or any of these other ne'er do wells. And he gets. 15, 20% maybe, who knows? I don't really see him out on the trails, but there was that one eyewitness, that young boy, uh, you know, the teenager swore up and down that that was him. It's like you said, why would he be out on the trails? His hands barely worked, he was... Again, not as a guy actively working it, but those were guys he hung out with. That's undeniable, so... He's the brains of this outfit. "It's <laughs> in a brains kind of operation. You're out there, uh, who knows, conducting some kind of business, exchanging money. If he's going to do that, then he does need to meet up with him and get his cut. Yeah. But what I was going to say is, as it happens so often, and you read these accounts of even miners on the, on the up and up, finding a lot of placer gold or hitting a gold vein, a uh, high pocket, wherever it is, you strike it rich, you go and bury it, you come back a month later and you can't find it that yeah. happens that is the major overriding lost buried treasure conclusion that you'll come across and we talked about this i think with the uh, when we're talking about the lost dutchman's mine and and the KGC is that geography changes. KGC for for yeah, listeners who haven't been there, that's the Knights of the Golden Circle series.
2: Which if the, if you're interested in this series right. and you haven't heard that, and you're going back through our archives. I would definitely go back and check out the KGC series. Yeah, I mean three it's, part it's, series, believe,
1: right? Yeah. Same era generally. And uh, what you find though, I think even Butch Cassidy had a stash that he buried in between some geographical landmarks came back like it's not totally lined up. You know, there's rock slides, trees fall over, you know, things happen and you just can't, unless you have GPS nowadays, sometimes it's very easy to lose where you've buried it. So my conclusion about the gold is I think a lot of these guys, that gold went somewhere. It's probably buried in a few small caches here and there. And who knows if they'll ever be found. Right. You know, reading this list here, there are a couple of big uh, theories. We talked about Mount Baldy, but Haystack Butte, located near Shoto, that's a city in, in Montana there, it says, before he was hung, Henry Plummer buried $650,000 in gold bullion somewhere on the Missouri River near Haystack Butte. Now, I'm getting this off of the Metal Detecting Ghost Town's website. Where are they getting this information? I, this <laughs> is legend. I mean, yeah, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's,
2: like, it's, yeah. it's interesting because Rick, right. we asked him point blank about exactly. it. And he said he didn't, hadn't heard anything about
1: that. So Some of it's passed down legend. We don't know because, yeah, I've heard everything from $6 million in today's terms to, I do believe the accounts of the time. When, uh, you know, the Irishman was robbed, bummer, Dan was robbed. Yes. I'm pretty sure he knew exactly how much he got held up for. Sure, and sure. Th- and that was accounted. That was taken as a report. Not much was done by Plummer. Right. But it was reported. Right. As these stories come down, though, yeah, it's just like it's a lot of legend. It's a lot of hearsay. But then again, people do find stuff and... Who knows who it belonged to, because it's not like, the property of Erastus Red Jaeger, please return if found. Yeah. It's not going to be on it. Yeah. But you'll find jars with a lot of gold dust in them. And that's what people did. And there's no, they don't trust the banks back then, or there wasn't a decent bank, so they buried it. That's a good point. And yeah. again, KGC series, there's a whole lot more information
2: about this kind of thing.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, here's a couple of other good uh, names, because they got also great names. Hellgate Rond Ruins, located approximately two miles northwest of Missoula. The Henry Plummer gang buried a cache of gold coins and nuggets somewhere in or around this town. Shortly thereafter, the gang was hung without them telling where the cache was buried. So that's part of the buried treasure lore is that you get rid of whoever could could tell you. But there's a lot of people that believe that Electa Bryant had a clue or some knowledge of it, not that she acted on it or participated, but that she had an idea that he had a stash that went along with that story she didn't like and... She took off and she's a pretty straight arrow. So I don't really see her, you know, I, that just one mention of like ill-gotten gains yeah. added to the, her narrative of I'm done with this guy. And then here's one last theory legend about Plumber's Lost Gold being on Hollow Top Mountain. Located approximately seven miles northeast of Waterloo, the plumber gang buried $800,000 in gold bullion and coins in a cave on the mountain. The gang was hung before getting back to the treasure. A lot of varied figures, bullion, gold dust, it's all there. But my final conclusion is that there will be small pockets of gold dust. Bummer Dan's gold dust, by gosh. And uh, they're buried in just small caches and places that are lost forever. So would it be fair to say that it might be easier to find, to go mining? It's easier to get, get a nephrine, regular job. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. always the point. You know, that's, a, it's, that's brought up in the, like the Sopranos that they make a joke about. These guys go to so much sweat and blood and toil to get ill-gotten gains to break into a safe. It's easier if you just had a job, but that's kind of the criminal mentality. Like, yeah. I don't want to work. I'll just want to steal it. Yeah. and But you you often go to more trouble and danger and hard work trying to steal something than if you just, in the long run, made more money at a regular job with a good retirement. There you go. But to your point, though, yeah, we've tried a little bit of it. Our family, uh, gold panning, we've we've done that. We've uh, tried a little uh, what they call it, nugget shooting with a metal detector where you kind of uh, run it over the tailings mm-hmm. of a dredge area, and uh, you try and find the odd nugget. Sometimes it does happen. There's a the great story that was... Uh, in the local papers up there where a family was off-roading and they crossed a creek, they drove all the way home, probably another 150, 200 miles. There was a big fat gold nugget stuck in the tire tread. (laughs) And uh, so of course they're like, we gotta get back there. And uh, they try to get back to where, even where they thought they crossed the stream, of course they couldn't find anything. So it is a lot of backbreaking work, but it can be fun because you never know what you're gonna find. And generally, if you know kind of the good places to look, you will get some gold flakes. And hey, if you get a little tiny bottle, one ounce worth, that's uh, $1,200. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. It's fun to try. It's a hard way to make a living. But guys do it. They do it to this day. Well, I tell you, I think
2: it's fascinating. And I think also it's fascinating what Rick was saying about the reverence for the vigilantes. That's almost about their origins, just yeah. kind of being kind of lazy. And when he was picking <laughs> apart at it, nobody right. really seemed to care.
1: No, it doesn't, um, uh, you know, because that's the thing. It's like, does it matter if some of that was true or not? Because what survives is the prevailing attitude. And as I've said many times before, the prevailing attitude is folks around those parts there don't mind you coming in and, you know, enjoying the place and minding your own business and they will leave you alone. Yeah. The moment it starts to seem like you're up there to cause trouble, injure them or their property in some way you are invited to get out of town as fast as possible. And that's just people's attitude. They don't put up with a lot of like, well, let's give them another shot. It's yeah. Like, no, nah, we're, we're pretty certain it's you. <laughs> you know, we know everybody else in town here and uh, you better stop what you're doing.
2: Well, all I know is that whatever kind of man Henry Plummer was, he was the third of 57 hanged by what many consider one of the first law enforcement organizations in the American West. It may have been overzealous and unorganized, but it does seem like it might have been the only effective tool against crime in a lawless territory at the time.
1: Well, that's going to wrap up our series on Henry Plummer. We'll be back next week with a new show of some kind. (laughs) We're still trying to figure out which thing is next.
2: We'd like to thank Bloom That, The Great Courses Plus, and Blue Apron for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. Special thanks to John Boland.
1: Hi, I'm Court Douglas. Hey there, Scott and Forrest. This is Joe Freeman-Williams. Hi, I'm Josh
0: Steen, the host of the Just Us Geeks podcast. And I give permission to talk legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy wide perpetuity
1: in perpetuity
2: our show is edited by sarah vorhees and the theme is by judson crane sound design is by
1: ryan mccullough special thanks to the ARC and its lead researcher tess Feifel. but most importantly we want to thank our listeners you can find us online at astonishinglegends.com as well as facebook patreon twitter tumblr google plus and instagram copyright scott philbrook and forrest burgess Good night.
0: Your Total Wine & More store is ready to serve you with our always low prices on an incredible 8,000 wines and 2,500 beers. Want it today? Try our same-day delivery or contactless curbside pickup at TotalWine.com. Whether you're grabbing your favorite beer or pouring a glass to enjoy an evening on the deck, Total Wine & More has you covered. Visit any of our 12 stores in Northern Virginia